What can you do if you have a claim under $20,000? It's the Keith Law PLLC podcast, and I'm Jason Keith, attorney in Houston, Texas. Keith Law is a Texas-based law firm that helps businesses protect and enhance their competitive advantages by assisting with trademark issues and identifying and protecting trade secrets. The firm's goal is to help businesses prevent and address business problems, and I hope this podcast will do the same. Not too long ago, the justice courts in Texas, also known as the Justice of the Peace Courts, the JP Courts, Small Claims Courts, increased their jurisdictional limits up from $10,000 up to $20,000. I was speaking to somebody recently who was uh, talking about possibly taking a, a contractor who did a poor job taking that contractor, filing a lawsuit against that contractor in, in small claims court. And in discussing that, it reminded me of, of many conversations I've had with clients who had claims that are under $20,000 and how oftentimes it does make sense that if the person does want to file a lawsuit, then it makes more sense to go ahead and file in small claims court without a lawyer, get the best results you can get in small claims court, and then decide what you want to do after after the small claims court lawsuit is concluded. For one thing, I've tried cases in small claims court, and I feel like based on my experience, the outcomes in small claims courts are not necessarily better based on having a lawyer present for you. They are more expensive. I've heard from a number of people who have tried their cases in small claims court without a lawyer and been very happy with the outcome. Small claims courts truly are people's courts where normal citizens show up and present their case to the judge in hopes of in hopes of walking out with a judgment it can go a lot of different ways you might show up and the other side never never appears you might show up and the other side appears and both sides have a very um a very in-depth discussion in front of the judge about what happened and what the right, and what the right outcome should be the plaintiff is the person who files the lawsuit if the plaintiff's not happy with the outcome of the lawsuit or if the defendant's not happy with the outcome of the lawsuit, either party, either side, can file an appeal to county court de novo. What a de novo appeal is, is it means you're starting over from scratch in county court as if nothing happened in the JP level. So if you're wanting to try your dispute without hiring a lawyer, you can do it in JP court, and if you're not happy with the outcome, you can hire a lawyer quickly, very quickly after the result, and then file a new lawsuit in county court. Like I said, it's a trial de novo there, meaning that it's as if nothing happened in the JP court, but in the county court, you'll be dealing with a actual, true, more formal lawsuit. JP courts are courts of equity as opposed to courts of law, which are county courts and district courts and on up. Courts of equity, equity meaning court of fairness, is not necessarily governed by law alone. In the 500 section of the TRCP, the Texas Rules of Civil Procedure, you'll find some rules governing JP courts, but they're not very in-depth. What you'll find there is that the rules of evidence don't apply unless everyone agrees. Um to have the rules of evidence apply, or if the judge decides to. Even though the rules of evidence aren't binding in the JP court, the rules of evidence are rules for a reason, 
they they've developed over time with a focus on trying to have a fair dispute. So it would make sense to discuss the rules of evidence if lawyers are involved. But when there aren't lawyers involved, the judge can handle the case the way the, the judge wants. Discovery is something that's not allowed in JP court unless requested and permitted by the judge. Discovery is something that in what I would call normal lawsuits is very time consuming and expensive because it's an out of court attempt to develop the case through written discovery where you send questions to the other side that they're required to answer within a certain time frame, sending requests for documents to the other side that they're required to respond, object, or send documents in response to within a certain amount of time, depositions, which are time consuming. Oftentimes there are inspections of property. All of these things are time consuming in a normal lawsuit that you can avoid in a JP case. What will most likely happen on the day of trial, assuming both sides appear for the trial, is the judge will send you down the hallway for a mandatory free mediation. What a mediation is, is you sit down in a room with a mediator who's a disinterested person, hopefully trained to help resolve disputes. Essentially, you'll be dealing with a relatively informal negotiation to see if the case can be settled without taking up the court's time with a true trial. If you're able to resolve the dispute at the mediation, that's great. You'll enter into an agreement, which is a contract, a settlement contract, and announce to the court that the case is settled and your lawsuit will be dismissed. Something to be aware of is that a settlement agreement resulting from one of these mediations or any mediation is a contract. It's a contract that can be breached just like any other contract. It's not a court order to pay you what's promised to be paid, but it's, it's simply a contract. If the defendant signs a settlement contract avoiding the trial and then immediately breaches the contract by never paying, what you're looking at then is a subsequent lawsuit for breach of contract, for breach of the settlement agreement. It's one reason I would really recommend that if possible, you're able to leave with some kind of payment in hand, if not the entire payment, something showing that the defendant does actually intend to pay. It's all too easy for a defendant to sign a settlement agreement and, and never, never perform. Let's face it, if they were someone who was great at performing, you probably wouldn't have ended up in the justice court in the first place. On the flip side, it's important to see settlements as valuable in many cases. If you do proceed to trial and leave with a judgment, a judgment is also not a court order to pay. A judgment is a debt, a judgment debt. And in Texas, debts are not easy to collect. Judgment debts are not much easier. When you're dealing with an unwilling judgment debtor, there are a couple things you'll do first. One, you'll order a writ of execution for the constable to go execute on the judgment. That's just where the constable goes and looks for any non-exempt personal property to satisfy the judgment. You shouldn't be surprised when that writ is returned nulla bona, which just means no goods. 
nothing was found that could be executed upon to help towards satisfying the judgment debt. The other thing you'll want to consider is filing a an abstract of judgment in the real property records. An abstract of judgment filed in the real property records will put a judgment lien on any real property, that's real estate, in the county in which the abstract of judgment is filed. Going back to the theme that Texas is a debtor-friendly state, your judgment debtor may own real estate, but if it's their homestead, the homestead will be exempt from the judgment lien. In the event that the judgment debtor sells their homestead property and your abstract of judgment is showing up on the title report, you can expect to receive a request to release that abstract of judgment as to that specific piece of property. And if you don't, you could be in the crosshairs of a wrongful lien. You'll most likely want to work with your lawyer to craft your release as to specific property to ensure that you're only releasing as to that specific piece of property and not all not all property in the county. You may want to do some digging to look into any county in which the judgment debtor may own real estate because the judgment lien will only attach to real estate in which the judgment lien, excuse me, the abstract of judgment has been filed in the real property records. I, I've mentioned that there's a lot of exempt property, property that's exempt from seizure for um, under a writ of execution. It's exempt from satisfying most debts, not counting taxes and child support. If you want to find out what is or isn't exempt property in Texas, you can just do a search for property exemptions, exempt property in Texas, and you'll see the list. Some notable exemptions include the homestead, an automobile for each licensed driver in the household, tools of the trade, a certain number of guns, a certain amount of livestock, etc. In practical terms, when it comes to private citizens, most likely your, your constable who's executing on the writ of execution is not going to be entering a dwelling and searching and scrutinizing property. They'll most likely ring the doorbell. If someone answers, they'll ask if there's any property that's non-exempt. And if the person says no, don't be surprised if that's where it ends. Some things that are not exempt from seizure include what I refer to as toys. These are boats, wave runners, four-wheelers. These are things you can see in a driveway if they're there and can be executed upon. Rental properties. If the person's a real estate investor, other than their homestead, their real estate holdings are not exempt from seizure. Going back to the hypothetical where you've gotten your judgment, it may get paid right away, but it may not. Don't be surprised if you're holding on to that judgment for a long time. Something to keep in mind is that judgments do not last forever without you taking action. Look up the specific rules. As I recall, the judgment will last 10 years from issuance. You need to have a writ of execution issued during that first 10 years, and then after that first writ of execution, you'll have 10 years from then, and you'll need to have another writ of execution issued each 10 years thereafter to avoid the judgment going dormant. If a judgment does go dormant, there's a grace period during which it can be revived. 
after that grace period is expired, the judgment is gone permanently. So if you've gone to the trouble of obtaining a judgment and you're interested in keeping it alive, just keep that in mind that action steps will need to be taken to keep it active. What if you get a judgment and you're super motivated to do everything you can to collect on that judgment? Then we're talking about after the abstract of judgment and the issuance and execution of the writ of execution, we're talking about other post-judgment collection steps. The first logical choice is to serve the judgment debtor with post-judgment discovery. Post-judgment discovery has far fewer limitations than normal discovery in a normal lawsuit. What you're trying to do with post-judgment discovery is identify the existence of and what is non-exempt property, property that you can access to satisfy your judgment. So you're asking, you're also asking for places where the judgment debtor has any kind of bank account or other financial institution, um, any other kind of financial account. Many accounts are exempt. Qualified retirement, that includes 401ks, IRAs, pension plans, FSAs, HSAs, health savings accounts, things like that. Normal checking accounts and normal savings accounts are not exempt, not exempt from seizure. Once you've identified those accounts, you can either seek a turnover order from the judge or file a lawsuit, which technically is against the bank itself, where you seek a writ of garnishment. Don't let the term garnishment confuse you. You've heard the term garnishment used in the context of garnishing wages. In Texas, wages aren't garnished except for unpaid taxes and unpaid child support. Other than that, wages are off limits. But when I'm talking about a writ of garnishment, I'm talking about a writ, meaning a court order for from, from the judge to the bank, the financial institution, to drain the bank account of the judgment debtor up to the amount of the judgment. This will have the effect of freezing the account, which usually gets somebody's attention when, when their accounts are frozen. And then if nothing's worked out, the account should be drained to the point of satisfying the judgment if there's enough money in the account to do that. I probably should have prefaced all of this talk about exempt property and, and debtor-friendly situation in Texas with the caveat that I'm talking about an individual. Individuals own, own homesteads. Companies don't. Individuals have exempt property in Texas. Companies, corporations, LLCs do not. Sole proprietors that are simply doing business under a trade name, that's going to be treated as an individual. It's separate legal entities such as limited liability companies, inks, and corporations, things of that nature which the law treats as separate people that do not own exempt property. This was just a, an informal off-the-cuff discussion of JP Court, why it might make sense to pursue your claim in JP Court without a lawyer. For one thing, if you're interested in doing it, I, I, I recommend it as an educational exercise, if nothing else. It, it truly is where citizens can go before a judge and have their claims heard. 
whether you're happy with the outcome or not, you will learn about our system through that process. And that said, I've heard a number of people who've had good experiences with it and good outcomes. My sense is that the, the JP courts and their staffs really do try to help their petitioners get access to judgment. It doesn't mean they're going to give you everything you ask for or even anything you ask for. But I do think that they aren't going to try to hide behind bureaucratic complexity. You just need to ask the questions. If you need help, don't hesitate to, to ask for help. Always treat everyone there with the utmost respect, courtesy, and kindness. They're public servants. They're, they're doing service for us. And th they need to be treated with dignity and respect just like everybody else. And um, you, just like anything, you're, you're likely to get better outcomes by being as polite and kind and, and um, genuine as, as you are to anybody. And, and when you do that, it's very rare that I've ever heard anyone. I, I can't think of any time I've ever heard anyone complain about the way they were treated at the JP court or not being able to figure something out. When they can't figure something out, it's usually because they haven't asked. And when they do ask, they usually get the answers that they need. At least that's been my, my experience with it. And then if you get a judgment from the JP court... You then need to ask them, what's your next step in the post-judgment um, step? And they'll most likely give you guidance. They are not allowed to give you legal advice, just like this podcast isn't giving legal advice. But what they can do is give you certain uh, information and guidance to help you move along to the next step. It's in everybody's interest for the system to work. And for it to work and you having had no experience with it at all, Asking questions and getting those answers is how to facilitate a working system. If you've had any experiences with JP courts in the past or you're thinking about it in the future, I'd love to hear what your experiences were. I certainly don't have the breadth of all experiences out there. I, I do have my own, which I'm not necessarily going into all of them in this specific episode, but um, I, I'd love to hear from from what your experience has been with justice courts in Texas. Did you get a judgment? Were you able to collect? As always, if you have any questions for me, you can post your question in the blog post that's attached to this podcast episode. You'll be able to find the podcast episode on my website at keith.law. That's www.keith.law. Up in the header, you'll see blog. Once you go to the blog page, you can pull down categories from the top and you'll see a category called Keith Law PLLC Podcast. When you go there, you'll be able to navigate to whatever I title this, this the blog post that's attached to this podcast episode, and you can leave a comment there. You can also shoot me an email at jason at keith.law, or there are two buttons on my homepage, keith.law, that say schedule a call. If you click those buttons, it'll take you to my Calendly page, which is connected to my calendar, and you'll be able to see times that I'm available. Those are broken up into 20-minute increments, and you can just select the one that's most convenient for you, 
type in a little bit of information so I know what we're going to be talking about, and we can have a chat. This episode's a little different than my normal episodes, which are usually focused on deeper business problems, although I guess technically you could consider this in the business disputes category because um, JP courts are where business disputes can be resolved. It's not a focus of my practice, but uh, a focus of my practice is educating people about resolving their disputes with businesses or businesses resolving their disputes. And um, this isn't an intellectual property topic, although it seems like recently those haven't really been my focus in these podcast episodes. It's just been whatever's top of mind. And this was top of mind. And so I thought it might be convenient to, to put my thoughts down for future reference. Disclaimer, this audio is for informational purposes only and should not be misinterpreted as legal or other professional advice. If you have a legal question, you should consult with an attorney in your jurisdiction. This is Jason Keith thanking you for listening to the Keith Law PLLC podcast.